Alright, so welcome back everyone to another episode of Kaveh J Screening Room. I'm your host Kaveh Jalinas and today I am here solo to talk all about Sundance Film Festival, which ran from January 20th to 30th and is probably what has been the most interesting week in cinema thus far. I mean, it's only been like three or four weeks of the year, but Sundance is one of the biggest festivals in the country, one of the most reputable around the world and kind of the first beacon into what kinds of movies we can expect for the year obviously a lot of films have premiered at Sundance and then gone on to become very acclaimed last year for example Coda which is a best picture contender this year um, was it actually won a lot at Sundance and then there were other films like Rebecca Hall's Passing Jonas Peter Ramhausen's Flea all of these amazing movies that premiered last year so Sundance had a lot to live up to this year obviously the festival was all virtual after switching from a hybrid format I think in late December or early January which didn't really affect the slate of films that much since Sundance is one of the only festivals that is committed to having virtual programming alongside in-person experiences especially because they specifically asked their films in contention that they must have both formats available for accessibility purposes which is an amazing thing that I hope a lot more festivals choose to take part in. So basically, when they announced their virtual, a couple films did leave. There was a um, French remake of One Cut of the Dead that I was very excited to see. That is, um, they took it out, which was disappointing, but it's okay because we had about 82 films. I love how I'm saying we as if I was on the Sundance committee. There were about 82 films this year, uh, 40 so of which were in competition. Uh, U.S. documentary, U.S. dramatic, world documentary, world dramatic. And then 40 of which were just films that had some hype, some had no hype, that were just premiering to the world. A lot of these films were COVID shot, and you can tell because they're strictly in one setting, or um, it's very theatrical, as in it seems like a play, watching a lot of these movies unfold. But there's honestly a lot to take away from this slate. I don't think, at least for me, there weren't so many clear films that reminded me of last year, even though last year had... I would say a good slate, not a great slate. There were some films that really stood out, like Flea, for example, which I just talked about a couple minutes ago, and Coda, which I didn't actually see at Sundance, but I saw on Apple TV Plus where it's streaming, and it is a pretty pretty touching movie. Um, there are a few movies this year like that. I think the top five movies I saw are just incredible movies that I cannot recommend more, whereas everything below that goes from pretty good to just downright horrible. So basically this episode is going to be structured as a journey through the movies I saw, which I was just looking at the list and I guess it's 19 movies. So I'm going to be ranking them kind of similar to how I did the New York Film Festival list from worst to best. And then I will make note of clear distinctions between films that I thought were bad, films that I thought were average, films that I thought were good, and then films that I thought were like incredible and must-sees when they release, hopefully in theaters, but wherever they release. Um, So without further ado, let me get into it. So my 19th film that I saw at Sundance um, is this movie called Alice, which if listeners are familiar with Antebellum from 2020 with Janelle Monae, it's basically just a direct copy of that movie. And that movie's pretty bad, and so is this one. So basically, the film tells the story of a woman named Alice who's a slave on a plantation in Georgia, who after 45 minutes of this 100-minute film finally escapes the plantation and discovers that she's in 1973. 
And from there, it becomes her learning about this new world she's in and her going back and trying to free everyone else on the plantation. The storytelling is not great, and it has a lot of unbelievable narrative jumps, and the entire concept is really just not fleshed out and not really thought through enough. And it's hard to see why this film was even made, because it doesn't really have a very clear story to tell and can't communicate its messages in a good way. Kiki Palmer's in it, and she's great. So is Common, who's uh, co-starring in the film. But besides that, I found this one really just drab and lifeless and just an unnecessary venture as a whole. So that's Alice, I would not recommend. Um, and another film I would not recommend is Lena Dunham's return to feature filmmaking after 11 years in this film called Sharpstick, which is I think 86 minutes long, but feels like 75 years. Uh, it basically tells the story of this 26 year old girl named Sarah Jo, who begins to have an affair with the father of the child that she babysits. It's completely muddled. There's nothing interesting about it. There's all these attempts at humor that just do not fit and are completely embarrassing to watch unfold. And then all these attempts at serious dramatic moments that also just feel so contrived and manipulated to the point where it just becomes unbearable to watch. And it's neither a successful comedy nor drama. And performances are pretty bad across the bunch. Lucas Abbott's in it, which is awesome. But besides that, um, there's just pretty uncompelling storytelling at play. And it's just a reminder that you can't always make a comedy drama compelling. And when those types of movies fail, they kind of fall really, really flat. And Sharpstick is a perfect example of that. Another comedy drama, actually, that did not work at all for me, which I can't tell if this is a popular or unpopular opinion, is Jesse Eisenberg's feature film directorial debut, when you finish saving the world, which he adapted from his own Audible original audiobook that was released in 2020. Um, basically, he tells the story of this young boy played by Finn Wolfhard and his mother played by Julianne Moore and explores their really testy relationship with each other and their narcissistic personalities. The dialogue, again, here just feels really, really difficult to comprehend, not because it's emotionally complicated or pretty dense it's honestly just very obnoxiously written and i did not like the performances in this movie which i really like julianne moore as an actress so it was a bit surprising and i've she's gotten a lot of acclaim for this role in particular that i just i don't understand maybe i was just so angered by the movie in general um as i mentioned in my review for under the radar it tries to showcase their narcissistic personalities which it does do a pretty good job of showcasing but the script just also comes off as so obnoxious and just a lot of expressions in this movie. And I'm not going to spoil them, but basically what Finn Wolfhard's character says is just so frustrating to hear. Which is kind of the point of the movie, but at the same time, just really, really annoyed me. So this next movie, which is 16th on my list, is kind of disappointing that I had to rank it this low. But I just did not really mess with it. And that is um, Tig Notera and her partner Stephanie Aline's first film M.I.O.K., which is one of the two dakota johnson led movies on the lineup and the worst of the two uh basically tells this story about two best friends lucy and jane um and the conflicting issues in their friendship when they're faced with a variety of conflicts um for example jane is moving to london which casts a bit of a shadow on all of their ventures together there's a lot of charm here and i think a more realized narrative really could have brought out a lot of the charm between the two leads 
the charm in the script and just the comforting nature of what a film done right like this could have been. And it's disappointing that this is the final result because I think there are some elements that are really, really well done. But most of this just came off feeling really flat to me and manipulated to such an extent that it doesn't really sell itself correctly and doesn't really have that final resolution that I was looking for. Um, there's also a lot more to this movie that I just have not spoiled yet. So if you do find yourself watching it, which I think it's coming on to um, HBO Max sometime soon, there's a whole lot more to this movie than what I have revealed so far, which it's not even that big of a spoiler. So I don't know what happened there. But basically, you're in for a little narrative surprise. Fifteenth movie is this probably the small. So my 15th film on the list is probably the smallest movie that I've seen this far. It's in the next category at Sundance, which is kind of for the lower budget emerging filmmakers. It's this film called Everyday in Kemuki, directed by Alika Mekau, and it is the story of a man named Nas who lives uh, in Oahu, Hawaii, and kind of has a very, very low-key quotidian routine, skates around with his friends, works every night at the radio station emerging these indie bands and pushing forward his taste in music to people driving on the road at night which he talks about a lot and just hanging out with his girlfriend and then the film itself tells the story of him trying to prepare to move to new york and finally chase his dream of moving away from hawaii most of the film is prepared with everything building up to the trip uh it's very very fly on the wall verite-esque filmmaking a lot of the actors are non-actors, um, and basically viewers are kind of stuck in these pretty long moments of just him trying to figure out logistical things for the trip, like him on the phone with the airline trying to figure out how his cat is going to get to New York with him, and things like that. It sometimes works. It has some cool visuals, and Hawaii looks very beautiful, but this one kind of just didn't really impact me i've forgotten a fair amount of it and it hasn't even been a week since i watched it but it's only it's pretty short it's only 80 81 minutes and there's a lot of messages about home being powerful and the fear of starting a life again especially as you get older didn't fully work but there was a lot to enjoy in it uh, my 14th film which is we're kind of entering the list of films that are just they're fine. They're nothing that special. Um, it's Phyllis Nagy's Call Jane, which Phyllis Nagy is the screenwriter of Todd Haynes' 2015 masterpiece, Carol. And this is a movie about the Jane Collective, which is a group of women who helped organize safe abortions before Roe v. Wade came into effect. So this is set in the late 1960s and follows this woman named Joy, um, played by Elizabeth Banks, in a very, very, very affecting performance, who is forced to locate somewhere to get an abortion after um, she finds out that she's diagnosed with this illness as a result of her pregnancy. So the beginning of the film opens with her search and then the film quickly transitions into Joy becoming a more prominent member of the Jane Collective. Uh, the film's messages are incredibly important and it's good that a film like this is finally shedding light on the Jane Collective which had such a powerful influence um in the late 1960s for women in need of abortions i don't think the narrative fully emphasizes the true magnitude of how the jane collective was a group of people who all worked together and made this system possible and safe for women in this time period and 
I think the decision to focus on one character and kind of have her narrative arc be the entire basis of the movie is one that does limit the film's perspective and makes the ideas and messages come through in a very straightforward way, but also kind of undermines the whole idea of the Jane Collective and the idea of each member of the group being this integral part of making sure everything functions. But it's not a bad time. It's a pretty quick-paced movie. In fact, sometimes too too quick-paced because things just kind of keep happening without any time to process what's going on. But I would honestly, if you're not doing anything for two hours on like a Saturday night, I would recommend this. There are some pretty affecting moments. So um, my 14th film, oh, this is now 13th. My 13th film on the list is this film called 892, which was in the US competition and is about Brian Brown Easley, who after getting robbed of his disability check, went to a Wells Fargo bank and told the people inside that he has a bomb. Um, It stars John Boyega and just an incredible performance and the late Michael Kenneth Williams in his final performance. And this is really just a performance showcase, I think. Everyone in the ensemble is incredible. And I think the story, while it can feel stereotypical, it kind of feels like any hostage thriller, which I think I realized in the middle of the movie that a lot of hostage thrillers are kind of just the same exact narrative beats and twists. So I think the real success here is just watching these performances on screen and especially Boyega and Williams and the way that they interact um, both as actors and impersonating their characters. So um, also Connie Britton is in this movie, which was very random and I was not expecting, but big fan of Connie. So good to see her again. This is just one that I don't think sticks very long, but does have some effective moments. So my 12th film is probably the most disappointing, honestly, film of the festival. Something that I expected to absolutely love. And while I admire certain parts of it, it just didn't fully come together for me. And that is Meet Me in the Bathroom. It's the newest documentary from Will Lovelace and Dylan Southern, the guys who directed documentaries about Blur, about LCD Sound System, um, which the LCD Sound System documentary, it's called Shut Up and Play the Hits. I actually really like a lot. Um... This is probably their most ambitious project to date. It's adapted from a Lizzie Goodman book that chronicles New York's rock band scene from 2001 to 2011, covering big bands like The Strokes, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's, Interpol. And the film kind of takes the same approach as the book and divides the perspective between all of these different bands, but can't really bridge the gaps between moving between them in an interesting way. Um, It's kind of a mouthful of a sentence, but there's not a lot of transitions here. So it feels really awkward when the directors move from one band just straight to another. And it becomes difficult for the viewer to kind of piece together where we're at with these bands because they're explored at different phases of their career. The footage is incredible and there's a lot of it. And there's just some things that are amazing. Just watching the Strokes perform, which I, one of my favorite bands is just always a treat to see. And I learned a lot about certain bands that I don't listen to like uh, yeah 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 as i'm not the biggest listener to them or interpol that i'm probably going to start listening to now because the documentary is pretty effective at showing their stories and their music but overall this one just didn't really come together for me and i think it might just be that expanded scope that makes it difficult to really take away because i think if they had just focused on the strokes or yeah 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 or interpol or there's a bunch of other bands here i think tv on the radio is mentioned for like 20 seconds um lcd sound system which they've already done a documentary on them so it'd be redundant to do another one but if it had just focused on one of those bands i think it would have been very successful 
So we're entering now films that I think were good, if not great, and kept my attention. Uh, and the first of those films is called Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, which is a film that I was not expecting to watch, but heard a lot of good things about and decided that I should check it out. Um, it stars Emma Thompson as a retired school teacher who hires a male escort. And basically the film is divided into, I think, three or four parts, very theatrically oriented. It takes place mostly within the confines of a hotel room. And it's basically just a character study of both her character and the male escort character. Uh, it didn't really work for me at first and slowly grew on me. I think Emma Thompson is just absolutely incredible in this performance and kind of achieves these emotional depths that I've never seen her achieve in some of her other characters. Although just looking over Emma Thompson's career, she has played some iconic people. I wouldn't say it's completely successful because it does take a little bit of time to win the viewer over. But I think once it really figures out what it's trying to say, it communicates its message really effectively and just has a lot of humorous moments and is pretty endearing to watch at least by the time it's over. So my 10th film is, I guess, a third of a trilogy that I think is being labeled as TV. It is Genius, a Kanye trilogy, um, the most expansive look at Kanye West yet. I've only seen part one of this TV series. Is I'm just going to call it a TV series because that's what Netflix is calling it. Or they must be calling it something like a limited event or something dramatic. But I think Sundance labeled it as TV series as well. So I'm rolling with it. Uh, it's called Visions is part one. And it basically chronicles West trying to get signed to a label. I, I'll start by saying there's so much footage here. And it's incredible to see how much of Kanye is being shown on screen. I think there are some really, really touching moments that gives the rapper a perspective rather than having to see things about him that have been funneled through tabloids or Twitter feeds or just any of those kinds of things. Um, I think the best moments of this are just when the documentarian, whose name is Cootie Simmons, shows him and his mother Donda just talking and you can really just feel the love that they had for one another and how proud they were of each other. And it's just honestly so beautiful to see and so heartbreaking. But I think it's very redundant. It's about 90 minutes long and just shows Kanye going from record label to record label trying to get signed, which can have its moments. And especially at the beginning, feels really entertaining and just insane to see how, again, how much footage they captured. But by the end, I was kind of ready for it to move on. I don't know if this will change in Acts 2 and 3. It probably will because, spoiler alert, Kanye gets signed to a record company. So I'm hoping things will kind of speed up a little bit and become a little more memorable. But, again, has its moments. The next film on my list, which is number nine, is this small film called Emily the Criminal, which is another movie that I was not planning on watching, but heard pretty good things about and wanted to check it out. Uh, it's directed by John Ford, starring Aubrey Plaza, and it explores a character named Emily, who is saddled with student debt and um, working jobs to get by, and basically finds herself involved getting slowly more involved in the world of crime. Again, it's a really simple story that's I thought was told in a pretty effective way. Um, Aubrey Plaza with a New Jersey accent gives a very good performance. And I don't know if it fully comes together, especially in the third act where the stakes get higher, but everything happening feels a little underwhelming and slightly muted, which isn't how you want a third act of a movie to go. But it's pretty fascinating to watch and 
says a lot about the pitfalls of capitalism in America. So I think pretty effective and definitely 95 minutes of your time. Not a bad way to spend it. Um, so probably we're now getting into the territory of movies that I enjoyed and would recommend. And to kick that off, it is the eighth movie on my list. Riley Stearns is follow up to 2019's The Art of Self-Defense, which you have not seen. I highly recommend uh, called Duel. And it stars Karen Gillan and Aaron Paul and is a story of a woman who finds out she's terminally ill, uh, commissions this company to make a clone of her, which this is set in the future where that has become normal. But then suddenly finds herself getting better and heading into remission. But by this time, it's too late. And the only way to determine whether her or her clone gets to live is for them to fight in a governmentally mandated duel to the death. Which, again, reading this plot summary out loud just sounds very stupid. But I've mentioned this I don't think on here on the pod before, but the thing I really do like about Riley Stearns as filmmaking is that everyone is really committed to what's going on on screen. Obviously the plot is just absolutely bonkers, but everyone's performances feel so in tune to what's happening. Karen Gillan has to play two people and does an incredible job with a very deadpan style of expressionism that works perfectly for a movie like this and kind of sells the dark humor in a way that's memorable Aaron Paul is just very delightful to watch in this movie. Um, his character is a very, very supporting character, especially compared to Gillen. But to be fair, I guess she has double the screen time and most of the scenes she's in. But his performance is great as well. And again, the, the comedy hits and sometimes it does feel a bit lengthened out and it doesn't always come together. But when the dark comedy works, it works pretty well. So I would, I would recommend Duel, honestly. I did enjoy it. Um, my seventh film is a another one of the movies that I was not intending to watch until I just heard all these amazing things about it, which is Sarah Dosa's documentary Fire of Love, which explores the relationship and lives of Katya and Maurice Kraft, who were volcanologists. Honestly, the visuals in this movie, or I guess it's not even visuals because it's actual footage, is just amazing. And I didn't realize that I could sit around and just watch lava and volcanoes for a very long time which is what i learned with this movie and it's a beautiful story of these two people's love for one another and their love for their passion and the idea that they can't do they couldn't i they couldn't do the things that they did if they didn't have each other um and i think that it understands that it is a documentary but is also this love story and that's what makes doza's filmmaking so effective here is that you kind of see a bit of both. And by the end of this movie, you don't need any talking heads or interviews to understand the love that these two had for one another. And that's pretty beautiful in itself. So the next film I want to talk about is um, Oliver Hermanus's Living, which is not a movie that you could have told me a year ago was coming out because honestly, the whole concept behind it is a bit crazy and very unexpected, at least in my opinion. Um, it's basically a English remake of, well, it's not even basically, it is an English remake of Akira Kurosawa's iconic philosophical masterpiece, Ikiru. And Bill Nye is in the main role here. It's a screenplay adapted by Kazuo Ishiguro, who I'm a big fan of his work, Never Let Me Go, The Remains of the Day. Great author, Nobel Prize winning author. 
and it doesn't really deviate from the story of Ikiru that much. It tells the story of a working man who is deep in the bureaucracy of, in this case, London's city or a county, county hall, and discovers that he is terminally ill and begins to just live his life and explore all of the things that he missed out on because he was so busy with this work that he held so importantly. Um, I'm not going to spoil the second half of the movie for those who haven't seen obviously living or Ikiru, um, but it is a very, the second half is incredible, especially in the, in Kurosawa's film. But even with the story beats being pretty much the exact same and the only difference being the setting and more vivid colors, which I guess it would be impossible not to have more vivid colors because Kurzawa's film is in black and white and this one is in color. Um, but kind of a beautiful rumination on what life means and what life means to the person living it and what life means when you know that it could end any day. And kind of just, it's kind of just calling out to all the viewers to really think about what is important in their lives. And I don't know, I found it pretty effective in that aspect. Again, just attempting to remake this movie is an incredible task because it's it's not a remakeable type of movie in the sense that it's not action-packed. It's very, very dialogue-heavy and very thematically dense and rich. So just attempting to make this is worthy in itself. And I think Bill Nye and Amy Lou Wood, who are the two leads, are just great here and have the chemistry to really bounce off of each other and sell what's going on on screen. My fifth movie is the film that they added to the U.S. competition in the middle of the festival. It is the documentary about Navalny, the um, very outspoken critic and presidential candidate for Russia running against Putin. This is probably one of the best examples of what documentary filmmaking can achieve. I don't want to spoil a scene in this movie, but there is a scene involving a phone call with Navalny making the phone call. And I will just say it's a prank phone call that if you don't know anything about his story will probably be one of the most incredible things you will see in a documentary and or movie this year, because it kind of just shows how much access the director Dan Roher had to Navalny and his life and his story and is a chilling moment. And just, wow, I can't, I have not been able to stop thinking about this moment. I think the documentary is pretty effective. For those who don't know anything about the character, it will, you'll learn a lot. And I just think that it's a very good example of investigative journalism documentary working, which is a genre of documentary that I'm not actually the biggest fan of. And I think is pretty easy to fall prey under a variety of different shortcomings and stereotypes. But this movie definitely does not do that. And think a lot of people agreed because I I know it won I think the US documentary audience award and then the festival favorite award which is out of all the movies all the feature films in the festival what people liked the most so that's coming on the HBO Max I think later this year and I highly recommend so these next four movies are kind of the four golden ones for me the ones that I would just wholeheartedly recommend the first one of that is the film that won the Golden Lion at Venice last year, Audrey Dewan's Happening, which is adapted from Annie Arnaud, a French, a f- very famous French writer's novel about her experience finding an abortion in, I believe, again, the late 1960s, where 
it was not legalized and very dangerous to even mention the word abortion. This is a harrowing feature that does not hold back from really showcasing the hardships that she was forced through. The main character's name is Anne, adapted from, obviously, Annie. And it's a deeply, deeply, deeply harrowing experience that I think I just said harrowing, but I cannot emphasize it enough. That is just very, very well made. Everything is completely on par here. Dewan's direction is incredible. Um, it's a very self-contained story that doesn't complicate itself, which keeps the story very focused, but also makes it very difficult to watch it sometimes. And Ana Maria Bartolome's performance as Anne is just absolutely incredible. And I've been waiting to see this movie since I heard about it. Um, the first day I heard about it was actually when I won Venice because I just did not know it existed. And I... I highly recommend it. it comes out May 6th from IFC Films, I believe is distributing it. So yeah, that is definitely one to check out. Um, the third movie on my list is one that I just really, really, really was not expecting to like. And it just, I think absolutely worked for me in pretty much every way possible. It is Carrie Williams' Emergency. Um, Carrie Williams is no stranger to the Sundance Film Festival. Last year, he was the guy who made the Romeo and Juliet adaptation set entirely on a smartphone screen, which is probably one of the worst movies of 2021 that I've seen. I was just, I don't know how you can modernize Romeo and Juliet that much and then choose to keep the dialogue just 100% Shakespearean. It does not translate that way. And yeah, it was honestly just a really deeply uncomfortable experience. And Emergency is not like that. It is not set on a phone screen, thankfully, and tells the story of these two best friends who are set to become the first black man to complete the legendary tour, which is basically just a, f it's a pub crawl, but with frats uh, on their college campus. And right as their night begins, go home to change and find this unconscious woman lying on their living room floor. And then just becomes this half comedy, half drama about them and their roommate trying to get this woman to the hospital and trying to avoid cops because they're afraid of what the situation will look like. Um, it's honestly a movie that has so many themes to balance. There's themes about racism in America and police mistrust. And then also like coming of age college comedy themes about like brotherhood and bromance. And it balances these two ideas very effectively. And I think the three leads just are incredible in this movie and do a very, very good job at maintaining that balance between comedy and drama that if, if Williams did not get the balance right, it would just be a disastrous film. And thankfully, it seems to present its ideas in a very, very complete way. Um, Sabrina Carpenter is also in this movie and is not very, very good. But honestly, whenever these three leads are on screen, it's just the movie really, really works. So we're down to my top two movies, two of which I can't decide which one I like more, but I like them both so much. And feel very confident recommending them. The first of which is Cooper Rafe's sophomore feature, Cha-Cha Real Smooth. Um, he has a very interesting process of naming his movies. Basically, uh, Cooper Rafe directed this movie last year, or I guess 2020 now, called Shithouse, which is a very grotesque sounding film that is not at all what the title would imply. And is this beautiful story about trying to get through college and that aura of having a lot of confidence and just really struggling to connect with yourself and understand your life deep within and was just an absolute knockout of a movie and cha-cha real smooth 
has that same knockout effect. It's, um, it follows this guy named Andrew who returns to his hometown fresh out of college because he does not have any money and doesn't know what he wants to do in life. Gets hired to become a party starter at bar mitzvah events around his hometown and meets this mother named Domino and her daughter Lola and just forges a connection with them and kind of discovers who he is and what kind of person he wants to be. Um, Domino is played by Dakota Johnson, who gives an excellent performance. And it's honestly just a beautiful story about people not knowing what they want to be in life and not being afraid to make mistakes. And I think that's the biggest success. Um, Rafe writes and directs these movies all by himself. And I think his fearlessness in writing characters that are fine with being in uncomfortable situations and can play them off really naturally is what makes his movies so successful. And that's definitely the case here. And I think that's a testament not only to the writing, but also to the performances that can really sell the uncomfortableness and the awkward tension between their characters. This film does not shy away from making viewers uncomfortable. There's a lot of awkward silences when the characters talk, a lot of misunderstood meanings between what their characters are talking about, but there's just so much heart here and it's such a beautiful, very self-contained story to watch unfold that if nothing will leave you with a very, very big smile on your face. And this movie is coming to Apple TV plus sometime this year. I'm assuming they bought it for $15 million and what I think is the highest sale of the festival. Good stuff. So my number one film, which to be fair, I was expecting to love and I did love it. And it just completely knocked me out. It is Kogo sophomore feature film after Yang, which tells the story of this family of four, mainly the story, honestly, of Jake, who's the dad in the family who must take their beloved robot companion Yang to get repaired after he breaks down one night and becomes this kaleidoscopic story of love and grief and loss and trying to figure out what matters in life and what are the things worth remembering? What are the things worth holding so close to your heart and kind of recognizing that this is your life and this is, the experiences that you're going through before it's too late. Oh my God. I cannot gas this movie up enough. It is so well-made and it is so beautiful. And it's obviously a soft sci-fi movie. It is set in the future where robot companions are a thing, but the way it presents its future is in the most naturalistic way possible. It's not a future filled with the metaverse and like robots taking over, but rather just this future where humans and nature exist at the same time and need one another to survive. The visuals in this movie are beautiful. Um, there's a Mitski song that was made for this movie that whenever they plan on releasing it is just going to bang. It's a great song. And everyone in the ensemble is just knows exactly what they're doing and can sell this movie in the clearest way possible. That gets you thinking. It had me emotional at I think 2:45 on a Saturday. So I can't wait to see this movie again. I hope to see it in theaters because I know A24 will be releasing it in theaters in March. And I believe the trailer must have just come out because um, I think it's supposed to come out today on the recording day. And obviously I'm recording it a little bit in advance. So, and I'm rambling again, but after Yang, just definitely a movie to watch. I think it's a movie that will benefit if you go in blind and will kind of teach you a lot about yourself that you might not even be thinking about right now. So that about rounds off the list of Sundance films I watched. Again, 19 movies. Um, 
a fair amount of reviews. I think eight reviews will be on Under the Radar Magazine's website if you want to check them out there, where my thoughts are a lot more concise and written. But overall, I think this was a pretty successful lineup. There were a lot more films that I actively liked this year compared to the films I saw at Sundance last year. And I think, again, Sundance is... They have mastered the art of hosting a virtual film festival. Their platform is amazing. It's easily accessible. And it's honestly just fun watching movies that even at home, you know, a lot of other people are watching and experiencing and ready to talk about. So Sundance, good festival as per usual. A lot of good movies coming our way in 2022. Thank you guys again. I'm sorry. The solo pods can sometimes be a little draining. So I'm thankful if you've made it this far. A lot to come in the future. If you would like to follow me, I'm at Kave Jelinas on Instagram and Twitter. You can check out my reviews for Sundance Films and more at kavijreviews.com. And I will see you next week in the screening room. Peace out. <laughs>